Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six. Today we have Makiba Hatton from Salvation Army, where she currently works as a housing navigator or a case manager, which means she helps veterans and other Houston residents find affordable housing with the support of government agencies based on their unique situations. She came to our meeting last week to tell us about the different types of public housing programs and covered a variety of topics like background checks, fair housing rules, and emotional support animals, and gave us lots of great real-life examples. It's a long episode, so I'll keep the intro short. Please enjoy the talk by Makiba Hatton. They're near and dear to my heart as a housing navigator, for sure. Uh, I'm with the Salvation Army. I work in our social services division, uh, where we have namely our housing programs, as well as boys and girls clubs and uh, emergency shelters. Uh, for unaccompanied men, unaccompanied women, and then families. So today I'm going to talk to you about some of our housing programs just to try to give an overview and bear with me because brevity is not my specialty. I talk a lot so even my PowerPoint slides are wordy. I'm warning you. (laughs) Okay, next slide please. So to name a few, our um, Our housing programs, we have our Supportive Services for Veteran Families program. We affectionately refer to it as SSVF, and it's Homeless Assistance and Homeless Prevention uh, for Veterans. And of course, I'll delve more into that. We have uh, a program called The Way Home. It's a collaborative uh, with the City of Houston and Harris County to end homelessness and the type of program it is is a rapid rehousing program and SSVF is a rapid rehousing program too which just more or less indicates um, that the program is short term you know it's not a lengthy program Uh, the way home the collaborative piece also is with the Houston Housing Authority with City of Houston Housing Authority so each agency that's staked in it is providing the case management and then the housing authority is making the payments for rental fees. And then we have our permanent supportive housing program. It's called Mission Advance. We have it uh, for young adults um, and then for families and veterans as well. So permanent supportive housing has to do with individuals who have experienced chronic homelessness. Um, And just to define chronic homelessness means that they've experienced homelessness for a year or more consecutively, or they've experienced four or more episodes in a three-year period. So at that point, um, the continuum of of care or the consensus is that the life skill would have depreciated and they would otherwise need more support to try to get their housing stability increased. Um, And then lastly, we have a new program on board um, is Shelter Diversion programs and so they when people come to the emergency shelters if they have uh, family or friends or they have a place to live and something is just real precarious about it that program will attempt to try and jump in and say hey um, spacing is limited (laughs) you know and we don't want you to become homeless So is it possible that you can continue to stay with your family? What's the issue? You know, maybe the person isn't paying the rental portion that he or she agreed to pay. Maybe it's a little exploitation going on and the family member is overcharging them. 
you know, it's all kind of things, but the case management just otherwise tries to come in the scene, on the scene and say, hey, can this be mediated because there's no space uh, in the shelters and then the, the individual is more than likely not going to come up on a list for, for help for more than about two years. Yeah. So that's that. Next slide, please. So I'll jump into uh, SSVF. So SSVF is for veterans who are experiencing literal homelessness. And so I, I took the time because I know that I'm very familiar with all these acronyms and definitions because it's the work that I do. You know, but as landlords, you're like, I don't know what that means, you know, necessarily, or you might. But literal homelessness is when someone is accessing a shelter, they're living in a place not meant for human habitation, like a car. Uh, and y'all, we see that a lot in the spring and summer months, you know, like a lot. Um, an abandoned building where there's no wa running water or no protection from the elements and the veteran is not chronically homeless. So the SSVF program is also for veterans who are at imminent risk of becoming homeless. So here's a little more way to kind of bridge into landlords a lot too. Um, sometimes you'll have an individual that you notice may be late with their rent uh, frequently throughout the term of their lease. And some landlords, you know, are able to get involved and say, hey, you know, what's going on? I noticed that you pay your rent late you know, about two, three times a year or more, you know, what's going on. And so that person may say, hey, um, X, Y, Z, whatever it is, you know, I got child support garnishment or I have a, a unpaid uh, educational loan that they're garnishing or I'm, my benefit is not enough, just whatever it is. And so at that point, imminent risk is established by a notice to vacate or either an eviction. So. You know, as a program, we don't want the landlord to just rush to notice to vacate or eviction status just be so that the veteran can get assistance, especially if there's an opportunity to work out a payment plan. But it may require, you know, a little bit of mediation or some case management to say, hey, are you willing to give John Doe or Jane Doe uh, an opportunity to get on a payment plan? Because if the amount is not so much you know, like if it's $200, is it possible that they may be able to pay $50? So that's from the program side. Now, as landlords, the landlords understand the overhead that they deal with. They may not have that cushion and ability to work with somebody, and it's perfectly understandable. They may have a note, a bank note or mortgage note that they have to meet for their property. They may have staff that they have to pay, you know, to manage their property or oversee things and may also have paperwork and all kind of administrative things that just you don't have the, the opportunity or the latitude to do that. So what we would do, we would, you know, the veteran would contact us. We would screen the veteran to see if the veteran is eligible uh, for assistance and then from there, um, that's what that assistance process pushed forward to. So under these are just some of the, the items or line items that the grant can assist with or the program can assist with. Application fees, administrative fees, security deposit or a risk fee, rental assistance, utility assistance, and then we have wraparound services that we provide within the program for the veteran. Employment linkage, uh, interview training, resume building, certification courses and programs like CDL. There's also things like um, 
sometimes we can assist the veteran with car repair because the car the need for the car repair might be directly tied to their housing like their job may not be on the bus line or something like that or where they live may not be on the bus line and they need the vehicle so those kind of things um next slide please so the steps to assistance um it kind of looks like so what has to happen the the case manager the ssvf case manager hey how's everybody doing sorry about that yeah <laughs> the ssvf case manager um, would provide the client or the veteran with a letter of support on salvation army's uh, letterhead stating uh, veteran Jane Doe or John Doe is participating in our SSVF program and it's the intention of the program to assist them with some of those various fees that um, I talked about and then of course it would be signed and dated. And so at that point, the veteran would need to apply. So we prepared a veteran that, you know, sometimes just because you're utilizing a program and just because someone may be accepting of that program, it doesn't mean that you don't have to satisfy the landlord's application process. Okay, and so that looks like two things. If it's a unit, if the veteran has income, we press the veteran to pay their application fee because we let them know, hey, from the jump, it takes 10 to 14 business days to get a check processed and cut through our financial department, right? And that's once we have the documents that we need. And for um, application fee assistance, we would need a W-9. And um, we would need a W-9 and an approval letter, or I mean, or a letter stating what the application fee is, if it's refundable or not, the person's name and the full physical address of the unit. We can pass this around too if y'all want now or at the end. But this is what our W-9 looks like. It has our heading on it because at that point we can file it and file the landlord as a vendor, you know, or a merchant with us. And this only has to be completed once a year unless ownership or management of the property changes, then we would need an updated one. So um, having a letter, this is a suggested template that I'll send out. You know, sometimes you, if you got, if you have your own, that's perfect. But um, this is just a suggested template. It's simple. It gets to the point. List the person's name. List the full physical address. What the fees are, uh, and sign and date it. And that, along with the W nine, will allow us to process to submit for a check request and get that processing going. But we warn the veteran. Within 10 to 14 business days, hey, if somebody else comes to that property, the landlord still has that unit on market, you know, somebody could get it. So if you have income, it would be great for you to go ahead and pay that application fee. And sometimes we have veterans that can't. We have clients that have zero income because income is not a requirement for us to work with a veteran, you know. But it may be a requirement for them to apply at a prospective property. All right, and so the veteran applies. I'm just kind of, I'm going to shorten all this for you because, you know, I tell you I'm wordy. These slides are wordy. So the veteran applies. We get some kind of proof that the veteran has been approved, which is this. Um, and from there, we come out and do it. We need to come out and do an inspection of the unit. So 
what's on the, ins the unit inspection? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I have a, um, a mock of the uh, inspection form right here. It's, um, it's a habitability inspection. It's pretty light in nature. Um, all it's really covering is that appliances work, you know, AC works, AC and heat of some sort. It doesn't have to be central. It could be window. Um, or the ones that are on the wall, like hotels, some still have those. Um, smoke detectors. Um, I go ahead and say a fire extinguisher should be in the unit, uh, full and ready for use. Windows on ground floors need to be able to unlock and open and lock. Um, that's kind of the gist of it, you know. Just making sure that the unit is habitable. Um, this inspection tool is not as as the HQS that we'll get to later. Um, so yeah, we come out, we do the inspection of the unit. The unit passes inspection. So boom, from there, we get a form called a rental assistance agreement filled out that's going to mirror the lease. So if it's prior to the veteran moving in, it should be a pre-lease. Um, if, if the veteran is going to move in before the check comes, if the landlord is willing and say, hey, everything has been approved, I know it's coming, I'll let the veteran move in beforehand, then the, the lease should be executed at the point that the veteran is moving in and the prorated calculation, you know, if applicable in there, if the veteran is not moving in at the beginning of a month. So we get this filled out. So this, along with the W-9, and the lease agreement and it has passed inspection that gets submitted to our finance department and that's what starts the ticking clock of the 10 to 14 business days to cut that check so the first check is always the most anticipated check right because you got some landlords who say you know what put the application fee if there's an admin fee put all that on the first you know check some don't say that some say no i have to have the application fee and admin fee first and then from there so that's the most anticipated check the first check every check after that is requested starting at the 18th of the month we used to be able to begin to request them I mean of the preceding month so we used to be able to request them at the 15th of the month and then finance said that's too early and we're like no it's not so that this check can be on time if it's 10 to 14 business days. So at the 18th of the preceding month, we can request for that next month. And of course, if somebody's moving in towards the end of a month, we already know we need to request for that following month as well. So we do it, we make it all inclusive. Um, yep, and so that's it. That's the gist of this slide. Um, before I go to the next slide, because I'm not sure if I put steps that were so dedicated to homeless prevention. Homeless prevention is different. Homeless prevention is urgent from the day you get it, right? Because the person is already behind and in arrears. So with homeless prevention, same things need to happen. We have to verify that the veteran has a, a current and valid lease agreement because the whole point of the assistance is that the veteran still can't be at imminent risk of becoming homeless once we assist them. So if they have a lease that's about to expire the next month, and we're, they're looking at us to pay two or three months of arrears, we can't pay it without the good faith knowledge that their, their lease is either A, gonna be renewed, 
you know, or that they have come up with a plan, a move plan, and have somewhere potentially to move to. So it just, the grant makes us, you know, make sure that the veteran is still going to be housed. Um, so we have to come out and inspect the unit, but that, that happens with the veteran. Uh, to just be quite honest, we really don't bring landlords on the scene with inspections for a unit that's already lit, being lived in you know, where someone's currently living. Now, if they, if we get in there and we see that they have some trouble in the unit, then we're like, okay, look, what does your lease say? We need to contact your landlord, you know, because it's independent living. You need to contact your landlord <coughs> if, if you have to call them a maintenance number or whatever, and then part of your security deposit, if you have some kind of damage, part or all of your security deposit may have to be utilized, you know, towards those damages. And then we also can assist with damages if it, you know, it just has to be assessed like what went on. And I think the damages have to be, they can't exceed the equivalent of one month's rent. Because one month's rent and security deposit, if the damage is beyond that, that's something else, you know, going on. So, and some landlords require renter's insurance, so, you know, that might solve that. Um, and then I'll just before I leave the slide, I want to make sure that I touch on so the assistance. The assistance is assessed month to month by the case manager. General rule of thumb, it's very unlikely that we're not going to assist a veteran for at least about 90 days, the first 90 days, because it takes that to even begin putting a dent in increasing stability, right? Now, if the veteran is missing, not coming to appointments, and you know we're gonna do everything we can. Uh, we're gonna come over. We attempt to try to, you know, check on the veteran about scheduling it with them because we're not their mom or parent or anything. So pop up visit, and we're not the police. But if they're not responding, then we may have to do a pop up visit. You know, we also contact the landlord and say, hey, have you seen Jane Doe or John Doe? Because if it's a property where the landlord might provide um, a lawn service or something like that, you know, maybe they, the lawn was being done and somebody saw the veteran. Uh, we'll send mail, a notice in the mail. We'll leave our card or notice on the door and say, hey, we tried to come and see you. But the truth of the matter is if we cannot find that veteran, we cannot continue to pay on a unit that they're not occupying. Now what we have done, uh, one of the things that we advocated for for landlords is that from the time that the veteran goes MIA, we can pay that following month's rent, but we have to give the landlord notice at that point that after the assistance for the following month, we can't pay, you know, anymore. And of course, usually the veteran is going to forfeit the security deposit at that point because all of that is going to go, you know, towards um, uh, the arrear rent that they would have incurred or breaking the lease. And let's see, in homeless prevention, the ledger is very, very important. So with late notices and ledgers, here's the thing: most leases have a formula. Um, and the most generic formula is after the third day, rent is considered late on the fourth day of the month, a $50 or $25 uh, fee is charged for that initial uh, day, and then 5 or $10 
every day thereafter up to the 15th of the month. We got some landlords who say, oh, it's late until you're going to incur a late fee every day until it's paid. And it's like, well, no, because the state of Texas at that point says a late period cannot run any longer than 30 days consecutively from the day that it began being late. So the meter has to cut off at some point, you know. And I mean, we get it. The, the landlord is due, you know, the fees because the person is late with their rent but that meter has to stop at some point because in in the world of grant and um, you know public assistance you don't have the ability to say well you know the late fee is now $200 today once you submit that check request any other fees that's attached to that would have to roll to the next month and then it would have to really be justified you know as to why it's rolling most landlords are really, really good about saying, okay, you know, we can halt here if, they're, if you're going to help them and everything. So that's not too bad. Next slide, please. So we're venturing away from the SSVF program, the veteran program. Yes, sir. Uh, so what if the veteran goes MIA for about uh, half a month and he comes back once y'all cut off the funding? Well, if we can get some indication, it, so the contact is monthly. That's the minimum uh, amount of contact. So if the veteran is missing for about half a month, then they come back in two weeks. You know, we can still work with them. All should be well with their rent. Now, more than likely, their rent is probably going to be late. Because if I need to submit the check request on the 18th of the month and you're missing, you know, from the 10th, you know, to the 28th or something like that, I, your rent going to be late. So at that point, I'm be looking at the veteran if they have income, okay, we'll pay the rent. But you went MIA, you're going to pay these late fees. That's going to be it. And we'll communicate that to the landlord, and that's the collaboration. It's like, take it or leave it. <laughs> so, um, leaving the veterans program and getting to the Way Home Collaborative. So, the Way Home program is that program that I spoke of where the agency is about, 20, about 22, 25 agencies. Uh, in Houston and on the outskirts of Houston who are staked in this program. So the agency provides the case management and then the housing authority uh, in particular, the city of Houston housing authority pro, uh, makes the payment. Now that payment can be made a uh, direct deposit because the housing authority offers the ability uh, to utilize direct deposit. Salvation Army has not arrived there yet. We're still mom and pop with paper checks. So. We don't have a credit card or a direct deposit feature. We, I, I'm advocating for it. Some of us are advocating for it, so hopefully it'll come soon. So in this program, it's not as flexible in uh, the payment of different fees as the veteran. No grant, I'm gonna just be honest with you, is as flexible as that veteran grant. That veteran grant can pay all kind of different fees, you know, stuff you never even heard of. It's like, what? But we can pay it. This grant cannot. It's security deposit and rent. That's what they pay. The security deposit absolutely cannot be more than uh, two times one month's rent. And even if it is two times one month's rent, it has to be justified. And so uh, much later or towards the end of the presentation, we'll go into um, the security deposit and how it could tie into a fair housing issue if it's just being blanketed 
right? So, um, yeah, the, the, the client finds a spot where they want to live or the navigator in the program might help them find a place. They need to apply. They need to be approved. Same thing, they need some type of approval letter saying what they're approved for, the amounts, and all of that. Now, they have a leasing packet. This leasing packet is similar to the voucher packet, the RTA packet for a housing voucher, but it's not as intense. It's about half you know, uh, size or half the quantity in paperwork. Basically what it's getting to is the description of the unit, the comparables for that unit because you have to provide um, three comps for active lease agreements to make sure that there's not price gouging, you know, going on. Um, it also indicates whether you want to receive, I don't even know if they, I don't even think they let, they allow paper checks anymore. I think you have to get direct deposit now with housing authority. Do, do you know? You can get paper, yeah. check. paper checks. Yeah. You can still get, yeah. no, no, uh, let me be more specific with rap with the way home program. I have a lot of experience with this one mm -hmm. and I actually was going to ask you some questions later, but okay. I will let you finish. Oh, no problem. <laughs> yeah, so they're still doing paper checks, so it's up to the landlord to opt whether they want paper check or direct deposit. So the leasing packet gets completed, it gets turned into the way home program. It's supposed to go through the case manager from whatever agency that's providing the case management and they turn it into into the housing authority, city of Houston. From there, they take it through what's called rent reasonableness. Rent reasonableness is the combination of fair market rent, and I'm so sorry, I thought I printed that and, and, brought, and you know brought it out, but I didn't because the, the rates change for 2019. It's a combination of fair market rent and environmental utility allowance if the unit is not all bills paid. Because fair market rent is always from a from an all bills paid perspective, right? So after it goes to rent reasonableness, if it passes, then they send it to the inspection department. So the city of Houston housing authorities inspector is going to conduct this inspection. And they're gonna use the tool, the um, housing quality t uh, standard, the HQS tool, okay? And so, I, some may have experience, but basically what happens, the inspector contacts the landlord or the property, hey, I got a request to inspect unit 123 on Blessing Boulevard. Is the unit ready for inspection? The landlord might say, I don't know what ready for inspection means. What does that mean? And so the inspector should say, you know, well, would you like me to send you an HQS checklist? All right? So I have one of those here too. It's front and back of all the things that need that the unit uh, must have. Right. And so the landlord gets it and they look at it, maybe they review it or consider it with their maintenance personnel or whatever. From then they tell the inspector the unit is ready or either it'll be ready on blah blah date. The inspector schedules it, they come out, they inspect the unit. If it passes, everything is fine. If it doesn't pass, then if it's, you know, if it's something that can be rectified, the inspector is asking, hey, when can you have this rectified? Uh, if it's one thing, the inspector might let you take a picture of it, but you also have to take a picture of entering the unit with the unit number on the door. So that, because, I mean, every this stuff exists for a reason. We've had landlords that switch units, and they took a picture of something in another unit and said it was fixed, and 
you know, it's like. So once it passes inspection, then the client needs to sign the lease. At this point, the, the move-in date may be projected, right? Especially if it's a landlord that's saying the client cannot move in prior to them getting the check. So it's going to have to be projected. I encourage you when you project that move-in date, give whatever cushion because it is a nightmare trying to go back and forth and change the prorated rent. Housing authority, there is no pay a full month's rent the first month and, and uh, prorate in the second month. Nope, nope, nope. You have to prorate for the current month that it is if a client is not moving in cleanly on a, a first of the month, right? So they sign the lease. The lease gets turned in back to that case manager so the case manager can send it to housing authority. Then housing authority sends the landlord the rental assistance agreement. Uh, form and packet and that's just a verification of we are going to pay this and the client is going to pay this or we're going to pay this so the other thing with this program is it's a constant scale you're trying to help a person increase their housing stability and the way to do that is to get them staked into the responsibility of their rent right so usually the first month possibly the first two months housing authority is going to pay the full rent but by month number two, and especially by month number three, the client is coming on the scene paying about 20 or 30% of their rent. Then that next month, they need to bump up to maybe about 40, 50, or 60%. The goal is to get them to assume the entire rent responsibility truly within a 90-day period at max 180 days. Because that program used to be able to assist for a year if the client couldn't quite get there but it was such overkill and it devastated the budget that has to be shared between those 25 agencies and their case levels. So they learned to put uh, a few more things in place to try to get folk motivated and going. Um, yeah, and that's, and that's pretty much it, how that program's work, that program worked. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So each month the case manager would be having some communication with the landlord to say, and the housing authority to say, this is what we're paying, this is what the client is supposed to pay. So the case manager is working on stuff with the client, like don't worry about when housing authority makes their payment, they're supposed to make their payment at the same time that is due in the lease. You make your portion when the lease formula says that you're supposed to, right? And housing authority understands that if they don't make their payment, within the period that the rent is due, they make the rent late. Doesn't matter if the client paid their portion. So then that's a whole nother story because housing authority can't pay arrear rent. So it's just really good to make sure you know what you're doing with that program or have somebody, if you have staff, who knows what they're doing with that program to get that stuff communicated. Yeah, yeah so like, um, I deal quite a bit with Houston Housing Authority and Harris County, mm -hmm. Harris County Housing Authority. But like uh, I tried this program out about a year ago, and I, like you were saying, you know, like back a year ago they were doing what you call it, like uh, a year thing, mm -hmm. where like they the, actually the first three to four months is housing pay for everything, yep. and then ninety percent, eighty percent, so gradually is uh, the tenants responsible for everything toward the last couple of months. Right. So and now you have shortened that time period, right? So I'm wondering what is the success rate, you know? 
uh, in the past versus currently uh, you are really able to stabilize persons yeah. and also that's question number one question number two is um, what sort of like uh, you know like checklist or program or whatever that you have in place to make sure that like the people that are accepted into these program are good tenants because like um, I have a very interesting story to tell on this one because like this particular lady uh, you know was a lady single mom with like three kids so um, and she was extremely nice during the interview process <laughs> and everything and then like during the I would say during the first six months everything was super good you know rent came in on time all that but as it gets toward the 80% rent 90% rent then rent start to be late and then but like we were able to work with caseworker to get those settled but then toward the last three months this is where this <laughs> that stuff comes in we got a lot of complaints from the neighbor um, uh, we issued eviction and all that but then the day before my eviction actually happens uh, I got two helicopters 13 FBI agents a SWAT team uh, one ambulance one fire truck uh, multiple police cars blocking the street you know and it's literally like shooting a movie like they they literally have AK 47 FBI agent mask on every day smoke bomb literally do like the thing break the window break the door throw a bomb like throw a smoke bomb in there smoke the whole place because like uh, and they have caught one to do that and the reason for that is because like they uh, they have been dealing heroin cocaine wow. and ecstasy wow. in the place but then the interesting fact is when they break in no one was there somehow they uh, somebody tipped them off so they the neighbor told us that like they move out literally one day beforehand and you and we knew that like uh, when they when they break in like they have couches and tables and everything leaning against the door and uh, and the window so they knew that like something is gonna happen but like, I think they escaped beforehand wow. so so I was wondering like um, what kind of people like this program accept and like has a program being re revamped it in a way that like prevent people like that from joining the program so I would say to the first question the success rate is better uh, because it was very uncomfortable at first uh, for the client in particular to put these new uh, restrictions on them or these new uh, you know tasks that there's no more than three four months you must begin contributing because it all starts at the point of the assessment so there's a central process uh, for assessment with homelessness called coordinated access that's uh, again an initiative through the city and county to try to address and resolve homelessness right so when they assess them it's basically two feeds one feed is rapid rehousing programs and the other feed is permanent supportive housing programs um, so that's what made me touch on that earlier with rapid rehousing programs the assessor is saying that this person shows the ability to rapidly resolve their housing crisis. 
right? And so that's where we get into the gist of this thing, but the success rate is better. Um, and in terms of client, we don't really have client filtering that much uh, because we can work with any type of client, right? On the social services side, there's no criteria or anything to become a client other than meeting whatever definition of homelessness that's required for that, that program, okay? What we pay attention to, what case managers do, if we have somebody in a rapid rehousing program who's showing chronic needs, then that is where we're advocating for saying, hey, this program is really not a good fit. We can't just throw money at this situation and hope, to get, and hope it gets better. So if we have, say for instance, if we have a person or a client who doesn't seem to be mentally competent, maybe they're off their meds, they're not really adherent with their meds, um, and just all kind of things that present like a chronic nature, then we, as case managers, I can only really speak for the Salvation or I can't speak for everybody, but as case managers, we have a due diligence to try and get that client the true appropriate services that they need. They may not be ready at that point for independent living. Maybe they need supportive housing plus in some kind of way. Maybe they need transitional living or something, you know. Yes, sir. So you said no criteria, even like any like criminal background, anything, no checking, no, doesn't matter, no. you take it? Yeah, see, in social services, your criminal background. Mm -hmm. uh, Not just have, misdemeanor or just yeah, the flow, anything like that, serial cure. Yeah, you and don't yeah. have to apply to be a client. Uh -huh. What we let them know uh -huh. is because if you have uh, an extensive criminal background, mm -hmm. I may not be able to house you as easy as someone who doesn't have a criminal mm -hmm. background. So it's going to get dealt with. It's just not on our side because... You know, to come and get services, to come and do plans to try to enhance your life and everything, there's no application for that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So we don't run your background. Uh, we don't gaff you, you know, to see what your global assessment of functionality is and none of that. So that's up to the tenant, I mean, the landlord's job to screen. Well, now, we also have a due diligence. Mm -hmm. We don't, there's not one landlord that I don't let them know if my client has criminal background. Okay, I may not be able to disclose exactly what it is because I'm bound by confidentiality, mm -hmm. but I can say, you know, hey, you may want to do your due diligence on the background check, you know, because there's always a solution possibly, not necessarily to get the person into that property, but the answer might be they can't, you know, apply to that property because of the criteria. Some landlords say, hey, I'm going to need a bigger security deposit. I always encourage why not also why not try to get a risk fee for the veterans because the risk fee is usually automatically non-refundable a security deposit by line item is always expected to be refunded if the lease terms are fulfilled so that answers my question like uh, that uh, is a very good point that you brought up that like um, you all don't do any background checks on these people I think like that was I guess my number one mistake on this because mm -hmm. I work with a lot on Section 8 uh, clients and I also work with like uh, criminal divisions and all that and the, and on the Section 8 tenants, housing do a uh, pretty thorough check on them so that like you know the, the class of client that you're getting are uh, like decent. You know they might have like a few class C misdemeanor, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that but like nothing too crazy. 
but then I also do uh, some housing where it's a little bit more crazy. Like um, I have one <laughs> unit where like uh, there uh, the tenant is a uh, child sex offender, oh, but nice. then I knew that in advance of time, and I and those type of clients uh, I like in a way because number one it gives them an opportunity to get back to the society. So like I'm all for like giving back to the society. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, like um, in a way that like uh, these people are very strictly controlled. Like probation officer calls me on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. Like hey, have they paid their rent? Um, you know like hey, I'll be doing a visit mm -hmm. on their house on this date. Um, when is your last time you visit? They ask me a series of questions that get me very comfortable because they're so closely monitored. And then another unique thing about that program is that like um, the probation officer, they have uh, access to the property at any given point in time. The key will give to the probation officer if he wants to and need to, he can go in without notice at midnight or 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning if now, there's anything that tips them off. So like this are uh, like the highly criminal people and I have cut <laughs> two units that are rented to these. So it's either you so for me it's either I do something like that where it's highly restricted mm -hmm. or like Section A has done the work for me. Yeah. But like for this program, I think what I didn't know and I'm glad I know now <laughs> is I should run a background chat yeah. on these people. Yeah. Because had I run a background chat on these people, I think I might get some pretty interesting findings. Yeah. Yeah. I, but um, even sometimes, sorry, mm, no, no, even yes. sometimes you run them and mm -hmm. they're clear and it's the people they're associated with. Yeah. That's, very true. Yeah, that's like, very true. That's very true. That's 100% of the time really. The, the person you're leasing to is not the person that's causing the problem. Right. She doesn't have any problems. Right, costing misdemeanor. So what happens when something like this happens? Do they get flagged or can they just go back into the program in another year? So this is the thing, again, because the program, the program is not a housing program. We don't house them, right? We're working with them in this human services, social services yes. element, right? So they could be the most horrible person ever, and we're still going to work with them, but they might not be able to stay at 20 different properties, you know, yeah. and, and the task gets a little more uh, stringent to try to find them something. I, I'm proud to say that uh, I've housed about seven or eight sex offenders. Not all of them had the connotation of child sex offender uh, in it. The other thing that's um, that gets sticky, I can't I can't mandate or uh, monitor their probation or parole for them either if they're mm -hmm. on probation or parole. You know what I do is when I'm working with the client, I'm, hey, are you on probation? Are you on parole? Yes. Do you mind if I see your, your stipulations, you know, the conditions of your probation or your parole? I look at them because if I see it, you know, then I have a due diligence, right? So I talk to them and say, hey, when we're housing you, if you have a stipulation that says you can't be within a certain amount of feet of a uh, certain amount of footage of school or something like that, you have to adhere to that. Yeah. You know, you have to adhere to that because the line gets real fine in terms of what you can do and what you can't. So, 
Um, so uh, for this program, since there's no application and you don't really look at their background, mm -hmm. if you get laid off from work, can you apply to this program? Yeah, so like I say, this program, <laughs> this program has nothing to do, and I, and I will add too, that this program, you can't go to the agency, whatever agency, and apply for this program. You have to go through what's called coordinated access, that, that central referral system that I'm talking about. So that occurs either in the shelter, they have assessors in, in the emergency shelters, or it happens at a place called the Beacon downtown uh, where they get assessed. And so, because the idea is to, and they don't do the assessment until you've been in the shelter from about maybe three to five days. Because you used to have a lot of people who would just come in for a half a night. I'm homeless, you know, and, and then they're referring them. So, and the way that they kind of keep down uh, cherry picking, client cherry picking or favoritism or anything, you get assessed and then you get referred to the next agency with the, next, with the availability or opening on the caseload, right? So that's how it goes. And you don't get to choose which agency you're going to. You, and so, yeah, it's a, but the initial piece is that this is the collaborative between the agency that's staked in it for the case management and the housing authority that makes the payments. Uh, and, and what are the, um, and as a landlord, what do you have to provide to them, like an actual house? Can it be like a mobile home or can it be like a room? Or oh yeah, you can, so when the landlord gets registered with housing authority, right. and sometimes that registration happens by this program. If you say, oh, we got a new landlord. Yeah. Uh, you got clients that might get a mobile home. There's a fair market rent yeah. for a mobile home. Might be a duplex, you know, might be a single family home. Could be uh, an apartment. Can it be a room too? A who? A room, like a studio room? Yeah, yeah. efficiency studio, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and because in the veteran grant, and that's something that um, Jasmine and Nathan can weigh in on, uh, in the veteran grant, SRO is SRO. Sometimes single room occupancy, I'm sorry. Sometimes that can be in the form of a home, you know, and what's happening is the person is going to have their own room, their door should be able to lock, and the rest of the areas can be communal, you know, or shared space like the bathroom, the kitchen, the washroom. They don't have to have their own bathroom, you know, they don't. But what most landlords do who have a property, the master uh, bedroom, they normally charge about $50 or so more because that bathroom is in that room, you know, just by default. So it's like, well, since you've got your own bathroom, you got a few more amenities, the, the rent gonna be a little bit higher. So you have to, at that point, letter or number your rooms too. They need to be A, B, C, D, or one, two, three, four. Because when you do your lease agreement, you need to be able to identify which room, you know, the person has. Yeah, so my last comment about this program <laughs> is that, like, so for, it's really for the audience in this room is uh, I make a mistake on my, on my end of, like, uh, really assuming something that, like, I really shouldn't assume. Mm -hmm. Overall, this is a very good program and give that. people an opportunity to like get back on their feet and I, I I truly and sincerely believe that like sometimes people just have like a temporary issues where like uh, they need a little bit of help on the society and this is the program that's out there to do so and like uh, the agency and the caseworker that uh, that I work with 
had an uh, is extremely responsive, very pleasant to work, work with, and uh, super sweet ladies like yourself, you know. So Thank like, um, okay. so like uh, for landlords that are here, you know, like uh, my story is only meant to be shared in a way to like uh, to how to prevent something similar that happened to me to you all. But like this program is a very good program, and if I have a chance. And now that I know this a little bit better, I might uh, consider, uh, you know, doing this too. Because I, on all my rentals, my goal have always been like uh, how I can get get back to the societies, and that's, that's why sweet. I choose to really uh, nice. work a lot of uh, work with people on the Section Eight housing. Yeah. Thank so, you yeah. for that. I will. Um, I'm gonna come to you and say this real quick. I will also say the lease is the most powerful tool in the whole situation of housing and housing opportunities. Uh, Mr. Lynn, Mr. Barry Lynn, landlord right here, he could weigh in a little bit about, like I suggested that maybe he put in there that he's gonna come, he would do it by appointment with the, with the client, but do an inspection on the unit like once every 60 days, you know. So not anything too, too invasive, you know, of a person's privacy or right to live, but once every 30 days or 60 days, something like that, you can implement that in your lease, you know, and when the person is going over their lease, you say point blank to them, hey, my goal is to make sure that this unit uh, is maintained within reasonable wear and tear, and I also want to make sure that it goes forward for the next person who needs it, and you get what you need, and you grow from that, and so to do that, I'm gonna, I would like to, I'm going to come in every 60 days, you know, and inspect this unit and make sure it's not torn up to smithereens. <laughs> you had a uh, yeah. I was gonna ask uh, for all the uh, housing support that the government offers. Do y'all, the, the different agencies, do y'all compare notes on how you um, price rents and what you will? Or are y'all kind of all over the place? Each agency determines how much they would pay for rent at a particular property. Oh no, you go by uh, government standards. So fair market rent. Uh, that's something that's done and it's different, you know, for the different zip codes or the different parts like outskirts of Houston. So the, the fair market rent for Spring or for Katy is not going to be the same or Sugarland for Houston, Harris County. So everybody already kind of, they set the precepts of the fair market rent uh, each. Is it also done by bedrooms? Um, Yes, yes. They, they take the comparable unit and they, they pretty much take a mean, an average of however many units and say, okay, this is what the average rent is in that area. And that's where fair, fair market rent. Grants and public dollars have to go by fair market rent because <laughs> I have an interesting story too. I had a veteran about maybe three, almost four years ago that I was case managing. Um, and she was a loan officer slash realtor. Well, in her previous year of work, she had made about $130,000. She was living a little high off the hall. So she and her husband, something went on, he had a stroke, he couldn't work, and they were living in this expensive rent house because although she was making that kind of money, she didn't have the financial management skills necessary you know, to uh, maintain, to maintain that or manage that. So they were living in an expensive rent house that was like $1,700 a month, and this is four years ago. And I think it was a four bedroom, so the fair market rent 
was probably about $400 less, you know, than what her rent was. And you should have seen what I had to go through with my director to take that case. So the goal was she was going to move somewhere much less expensive and start living within her means. But in order, in order to do that, she had to successfully fulfill that lease. And then because of her occupation, she could not incur an eviction, you know, or she would be in jeopardy with her occupation. And I'm telling you, it was intense because she had to accept the salary and she could not accept commissions because she never had the money to pay the drawdown to be able to get the commission. You know, I mean, it was a very, uh, we laugh about it still in the office because they like, Makiba, I don't know how you pull that off paying $1,700 rent, but it worked. You know, and and because you can't measure human potential, and when she said, "Hey, next year I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollars," well, when she when she showed her W two, she had made a hundred and thirty that previous year. So who's to say that she wasn't going to make another hundred thousand dollars? You know, you just can't measure human potential. So it's some interesting stuff um, that that goes on. And was it something else I was going to take? Go ahead. Yeah. So like that's pro. So to just uh, add to add. Help clarify Jimmy's like question here is this program along with the mixed program that you're talking about is all set by Houston Housing Authority and Harris County Housing Authority uh, the payments come directly from them the FMR are divided into uh, three groups it depends on the zip code most yeah. of the zip code in the in, in the loop is classified into the 97 percentile yeah and then on the outskirts of Houston are uh, classified into uh, the 107 and 170 percentile. Yeah. Uh, if you are on the VA program, so that like if you're a veteran, there's a special class uh, that are allocated, and it's the 130 percent FMR program. So the good things about this, along with the Section 8 program, is that like um, technically, uh, you can get above market rent for the houses that you rent out because FMR, FMR stands for fair market value. Right. Yeah, fair market like right. rent. So whatever it is, is technically a little bit more than that. And then also to just another strategy that you mentioned a really good strategy on like, hey, in, like, put on your lease every 60 day that you want to like uh, come in and inspect the house every day. Some tenant, when I say that, as when I first started doing rental about three years ago, like uh, some tenant found this to be like um, invasive, mm. and they think that like, oh, so you don't trust me? So no, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I am not a very confrontational person, so like, I don't I don't I don't get into that. So what I usually so what I have learned from that is uh, the way that I do it is like hey you know like um, I I trust you very much and everything, but you know like uh, the AC filter is can be costly you know uh, I would like to s help you save some money the kitchen exhaust like uh, filter can be like costly I would like to help you save some money so like uh, every night uh, every 90 days I'll stop by and I'll change your air filter I'll change your like uh, batteries uh, and smoke detector batteries and kitchen exactly so like because, because like all these are required for housing so so by doing that you literally get yourself into every room and see every rooms are okay and then like and to them they appreciate you more because you're providing a service 
we're at that payment. I just want to come by and check the unit, you know. But yeah. like, so like they, when I go by, I do actually bring in like air filter and kitchen filter, exhaust fan filter, and battery to change all that. And then you're right, like a lot of the times there are issues going on, like there's holes in the wall, you know, yeah. uh, stuff like that. But then like you just ask them, hey man, can can you all fix that? Yeah. And then like or like hey, can you all pay my guys to come and fix it? So. Yeah. You catch mistakes, you catch some of these stuff that they have going on quickly. And, and again, uh, in that lease agreement, maybe in the part with maintenance, I know um, landlords who rent homes do will do that a lot in terms of saying uh, for any maintenance issue in the home, a $75 deductible yep. is must be paid, you know, because that's it's normally going to match whatever their service call fee is for the warranty, you know, yep. on the home. Just little things like that. Um, and then I'm gonna get to the next slide. We got one more program that I wanted to uh, go over. So permanent supportive housing, PSH. Uh, our program is called Mission Advance. Another form of supportive housing, uh, permanent supportive housing is HUD-VASH, the VASH voucher. The SH in VASH stands for supportive housing. So that's the Section 8 voucher that's streamed towards veterans, right? Not us, we don't, we don't do vouchers. Vouchers always come from the housing authority. But in this program, this is for the clients that I talked about who are chronically homeless. They've experienced chronically, uh, chronic homelessness and they usually are managing chronic disabling conditions or disabilities, whether that's mental health, uh, physical, or anything like that. Most of them, most of the time, they're in care uh, to be able to manage it. You know, whatever it is, depression, anxiety, anything, you know, so, um, and it's not something that they have to, like, put on any applications or anything, because, you know, as long as they're in treatment for it and they're fine, they'll be okay. So this program functions a lot like the veteran veterans program, because it's internal, uh, the payment is coming from the Salvation Army uh, via check, and this program requires an HQS inspection, the same one that Housing Authority uses. And right now, for the last three years, I've been the one co conducting those inspections because I have my certification for HQS. I've trained a couple other people so they can do it, but I have to sign off on it. You know, a lease addendum goes with this uh, program with a case manager. The case manager is going to come over with the client and sign the lease and go over the lease. So we, in the other programs, we can't sign a lease that's independent living. But Salvation Army actually hops on the lease with this client in this program because the intention is to assist the uh, client for a year at a time. Uh, and they have to renew, you know, in the program. And in that second year, it's in there that they start contributing to towards 30% of their living expenses. So it may not be their rent. They might contribute towards their utility or something but they're still going to get the assistance. The lease addendum is also to say that there may be periods of time that this individual has to go in for some type of medical <coughs> rehab or treatment and that we're still going to pay on the unit, you know, even though they're not there. And because the hope or the expectancy is for them to return to the unit. So this is a very long-term program and long-term assist is really, really good. So just like a voucher, uh, a voucher is always intended to be utilized a year at a time. That's the minimum that it could be used because you can't establish permanent housing 
outside of uh, one year uh, for rapid rehousing programs. Um, same paperwork, one of our W-9s, the rental assistance agreement, and again, the case management, the case manager really sticks close with this client because they're not as independent. Um, all bills units are preferred because most of the time um, the client is going to be on a very low fixed income. Um, and so I've worked with some landlords that have been able to create an all bills paid feature. I always say that's very difficult for landlords because if they're not subsidized by the city or the county, in the summertime they're getting hit over the head with the AC bill and then the, the electricity and then in the wintertime they get hit over the head with gas with heat you know so it gets very hard to try to create an all bills paid situation but it can be done i have a landlord who came on the scene recently and what he does he has a, a few condos here in southwest houston and he pays the first fifty dollars of the electricity bill and anything over that the client has to pay and it's same thing with water but he didn't really stipulate that too much because he's like, I, I doubt that one person would be using, you know, more than fifty dollars of water. Like I'll be like, hmm. <laughs> so, he, yeah, he's a he's a fun guy. I can't wait when he's in in the country because he's a, he actually lives out of the country. He's from England, and so I can't wait for him to be in the country and attend one of these meetings. Y'all would love him. Like he's <laughs> he has some stories. So yeah. Um, that's the gist of the Mission Advance program, and we have it, for, again, for young adults uh, and then veterans and then families. So, because sometimes we have veterans who are not, they, they're chronic, so they need, but they may not be eligible for the VASH voucher based on their VA benefits, right? So they need a long-term solution. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and just forms to familiarize with, and I bought some of them. Um, again, most of them are specific to the Salvation Army, you know, and internal documents, they won't help you anywhere else. <laughs> so, but for you to be able to look at and everything, so that, that's a good thing. And I think the last slide, they got one more slide in there, I think. Yeah, so fair housing, that's something I wanted to touch on a little bit. Fair housing is... This is the HQS checklist, if y'all want to pass this around at all and just kind of take a look at what's, what the expectation is. That's for housing authority and for the um, permanent supportive housing program. And some of this other paperwork we'll get into, uh, you know, afterwards if you want to see it. Fair housing just kind of lists the categories in which a person cannot be discriminated against. And so this ties into rent or it ties into security deposits a lot because I'm dealing with a property now. Uh, they're, they're a big property too, uh, Diamond Hill at Westheimer and Piney Point Village at Westheimer. And what they've been doing is just kind of blanketing the security deposit to be double one month's rent. And it's like, why? Because I don't care if it's one out of 20 clients that actually meet the criteria on their own you have to leave way for that one that might do it, and it can't be the blanketed effect. It's justified if a person does not meet the regular rental criteria for the property. That has to be made clear, too. You know, sometimes we get landlords who make it up kind of as they go, 
and say, oh, this is the criteria for the property. And it's like, really? When, when then you pull those comps and the comparables, it's like, mm, that's not true. That's not true. So make sure that your <laughs> leasing criteria is clear and it's uh, general and the same for everybody that's there. Because you can't charge a person a higher deposit just because they're using a program or a voucher or a resource. If you decide to accept the assistance from the program or the resource, that's fine. The only reason you can charge a person an increased deposit is because of one or more of the three areas, uh, income, lack of income, criminal background, or negative rental history, right? But if you don't have that in your criteria that apply to your whole property, that's another story. We didn't even talk about, uh, um, what did I want to talk about? Uh, well, we this whole thing, I don't know what's going on with companion animals. Everybody's been getting a little smart with companion animals versus service animals. So, you you got something on that? Well, I just ha I just feel housed today, and then last time I just don't remember people asking about uh, the service dog thing. But this time I just hear so many like, do you accept service dogs? Do you accept service dogs a lot? And yeah. uh, I just didn't have to do this a lot. No, no dogs. <laughs> now service dogs can't be denied uh -huh. because they fall under the ADA under uh -huh. Americans with Disabilities Act. So if a person has their dog registered, they have to be registered and certified though as a service dog. And they will have to present that, that proof. And then service dogs can be charged uh, a pet deposit. Mm -hmm. But what I've done is, you know, told the landlord, hey, you may want to, maybe a risk fee, you know, uh, because you won't be in violation of anything but maybe the risk be to try to recoup for the fact that a dog is going to be, you know, present. And most service dogs, if they're a legitimate service dog, you, you really don't have any issues out of them, truly. Uh, maybe outside of, like, carpet or something like that. But I just, I'm always trying to think of a way for the landlord to fairly get their money as well, you know, for their unit and to have that reserve in case something goes on. Because I just moved a veteran into a home in Conroe beautiful home. Wow, I was like, wow, that home is beautiful. And the service dog is a mix of a, I want to say a mix of a shepherd and I can't remember the other breed, but it's a big dog. And the landlord had in their lease at first, you know, that dogs over a certain weight or certain breeds could come in, but at, you know, with the dog being a service dog and registered and certified, had to accept the service dog. Most people aren't going to tell you if they have a dog anywhere. You'll, you'll get complaints about barking and, and they'll give you a reason. It's just there for a day and keeping it for my mom or something like that. And I just had a person that moved out of a property. So I, I, I kept a dog for a couple of days. The dog had chewed up the door molding. He kept it in the bathroom. <laughs> chewed up everything in the bathroom. Wow. So I prefer not to have any yeah. animals at all. Me neither. And once somebody, once it comes to your attention that the person has a dog, um, yeah, so that person at that point, give them written notice 
you need to pay either pay a pet deposit if it's a breed that you allow or it's within a weight that you allow. If you don't allow it, you need to write that person a lease violation because you got to document, you know, what's going on. Like I say, for certain things on the, on your property that are egregious or emergency 911 situation, call the police, and you do not have to write somebody a violation if there's something urgent and you know egregious or violent or anything like that. You don't need a lease violation, but if somebody's violating the lease because they have a dog, and either a they hadn't paid the deposit for that dog. Uh, and monthly pet fee because a lot of landlords and properties have gone to the monthly pet fee now to try to really make sure people are being responsible for their animals, you know. Um, then, yeah, write them a lease violation and tag it on there with what they owe because when that case manager says, hey, I'm calling to let you know that I'm going to assist John Doe for the next month, you need to send that case manager that notice that they owe this fee it needs to be paid within XYZ days or they are going to be uh, in notice to vacate status because they are in a violation of their lease. Yep. But um, fair housing, like I say, if y'all want to take a look at this and, um, you know, it just, it's a lot that goes on. You know, I know it's hard. It's a lot that goes on. Um, race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familial status, or national origin. You know, everybody may not be okay with, with same-sex families, you know, but it's something that you can't discriminate against when you're renting or leasing, you know, to individuals. The only way that you can really make up or enforce whatever your rules or beliefs or anything are it is is if you live on the property and it's less than five units. So if it's less than five units and you live in one of the units, you can say this is a no-kid property. No kids can come here, you know. But if that unit is five units or more, even if you live on property and it's more than five units, you can't say that. Like you have to consider the applications for any type of familial status um, you know, if you got somebody that's transgender and they present whatever they're presenting as, you know, if they're on their ID, if their name is, you know, John Doe, but they said explicitly, my name is Katrina, you know, you got to call them Katrina. But in the application, legally, they have to put their legal name, right? And they want it to be called whichever, that is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have to put their name on their ID because they they do have the opportunity or the ability to get their ID changed to reflect yes. their their name that they identify with. So that's on them to, to make their ID match what they want to be called. They can't, you know, if you present somebody with XYZ, you know, for the application, you can't say, call me Katrina, but I don't have anything else, you know, <laughs> to call you. So seriously, like, you know. Yeah, and the encouragement to do it. You know, we that's what case managers are doing is, because um, it's a lot of people, man, they've been through a lot. You know, they, they really have. And what you're hoping in the end is that opportunities, engagement, not supervision from a punitive manner because people are adults, but checking on them, genuinely being concerned for them. Like, you, like you're saying, if you're part of the service, and I'm talking about the, the social services side, not necessarily the landlord side, because maybe you didn't sign up for all that when you, you know, 
saying I want to become a landlord or rent properties, you know? But that's what it is. That's the gist. So about the kids thing on the mm -hmm. five property, you think there are actually ways around it. <laughs> so um, if you can somehow designate that area or that complex to be a senior living facility, yeah. then it doesn't matter how many units, you can have 100, 200 units, no problem. You can yeah. like, well, yeah. you can still if you If you deem it as an adult that. living community yep. or a senior property, then it's different. But then in the visitation, right? you know, because then if, if it turns around and you have a grandparent that has to assume custody of a grandchild because maybe family placement or something through CPS, then you got a whole other situation on your hands. But it can, you know, work right. for the most part. Well, I don't want to talk y'all to pieces, but, you know, if y'all have any other questions or anything, I'm definitely here. This is my contact information. Um, and we have a couple of other navigators within the agency. Um, so one of them works in the shelter diversion program. So he's housed, his office is housed at our family residence shelter in Midtown, beginning of downtown. Uh, and the other navigator, she deals with the uh, the PSH program mostly, and she's housed. She's also housed at that shelter. So, mm -hmm. do a lot of individuals choose to live on the streets instead of uh, seeking help? And is there a reason behind that that you know about? So, out of the hundred percent of population that's home experiencing homelessness. Only eighty only twenty percent are chronic. Okay. So that question is kind of it's a little subjective because it may depend on the person's perception, which ends up being their reality. Um, they may feel like I can't do anything but live on the streets because where I'm living is so unbearable. Uh, you know, and that's their perception that they had to take to the streets. Um, I can tell you that as of twenty seventeen. We effectively, as a city, ended <coughs> veteran homelessness. Not to say that there's not any veterans who are homeless. It just means that there's a solution for every veteran. There is a solution, and it's about whether they want that solution or not. Or not. Yeah. So it's kind of a yes and no. Got it. Do, do the uh, homeless population, are they aware of the program, or do they need education? Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, <laughs> most of the clients could do my job. You know, oh, okay. easily, like they, they definitely know. Uh, some of them are under-informed about okay. resources and just don't know how to do it or utilize them. And then that's the whole too, because in the program, in the case management, we do a lot of uh, case management towards budgeting and financial management and resources. And we start to, we try to help the person address any fears or myths of coming off of a resource, you know, or a system. Like, ooh, I can't work too much or I can't get too good of a job or I'm just like, no, of course you can. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can. There'll be something else. There's a, something else for you to go to. And then you can pay it forward and help somebody else as well. So for like the homeless shelter, do y'all give them food too? Oh yeah. The homeless shelter must serve food. So we serve three meals. Oh wow. Uh, so, so all those people are just asking for food and money. They may not be in a shelter. They may, uh, you have, now you do have some individuals who have uh, mental health issues that may be untreated or undertreated 
and they may have a paranoia or an anxiety about staying in a shelter, and they more, they're more comfortable outside or in a car. But there are uh, several uh, day centers or day shelters that provide food as well. It just kind of gets to, or you might have a senior who's under eating, and they may not know that they're about the food pantries that's close to them. Um, because they may have some food and just not enough. They might be eligible for Meals on Wheels and just don't know it yet, you know, all those things. Is there certain qualifications that you have to meet in order to go to shelter and get food? <laughs> well, I'm not implying anything. <laughs> no, I mean, you, so you can't just go to the shelter, not ours, just to eat. Oh. <laughs> and, and the city ended that because they were, tr they're trying to really address homelessness and then food programs and everything so you couldn't really get an accurate count on people who were uh, just coming to eat and may not stay in the shelter. Oh so, so. If you're gonna eat you gotta stay too. <laughs> it's more like if you're staying in the shelter then you eat. Oh okay. yeah. so can I go in for a day and stay and then eat there or like do I have to get qualified? Yeah no you don't have to qualify. Oh, There's okay. space and availability and you got an oh. ID if you don't have an ID, you need to go get a hot ID. That's Homeless Outreach Team uh, Division of HPD, a uh, hot ID, or, uh, yeah. Yeah, you got, because everybody, you know, whatever their behavior may be, whatever any addictions that they may struggle with, any mental health situations, you have all of that present. So you might have somebody that says, I can't panhandle as well as I want to if I stay in the shelter because I'm gonna miss all of the money because I gotta be in the shelter by whatever time the curfew is. Our curfew in our shelters is pretty lax um, because the hope, you're trying to get people who might be working and maybe they're underemployed that's, I see more underemployment than unemployment, right? So we have an employment specialist in the shelter who will work with everybody to try to help them increase their employment. You got something, that's just their way of life. And you're hoping that the engagement or interventions might interrupt that. It might take 10 interventions, 10 times, you know, over 10 years before somebody will say, hey, I kind of don't like not having my own place to live. I don't like taking or packing every single thing I own with me every time I go somewhere. I kind of want to get a good night's sleep, you know. That's what you're hoping for. But yeah, they, the resources are there. We There's a free bus, uh, Project Access, downtown, and it looks like it's a chartered bus. Got tenant windows, AC on it, and everything. So a person can ride, um, it goes to the VA, it goes through Midtown, Downtown, and right there towards East uh, Downtown through Edo. And they can ride the bus for free to get to whatever agency they need to. You know, but you got a lot of people that say, well, I ain't go because I ain't have bus fare. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? So, yeah. It's, just, it's something else. Once you get in it, because I'm like, 
it blew my mind at first when, but I've been in this work now for about 13 years, 13, 14 years, so, yeah. Do, do city uh, actively discourage pet handling? Uh, yes. Yeah, they do. Um, you know, the police, the hot team understands more than just the police officers who are not part of the, the hot team because the, the other police officers, they, at one point, they used to ride by them and take their crates, you know, because uh, most of them have those milk crates that they'll get to sit on. They would take their crates, take their signs, and make them move somewhere else, but then, yeah, they, they can't really do that, you know, on public uh, streets and, and different things. Now, when you're in deep restricted areas, that's something different, you know, but, yeah, they try to disrupt it, and they, I mean, almost every entity now, from lawyers to police officers, judges, priests, everybody, everybody has to be a social worker now, because that element is just present. And then you have the young adult population. I can't tell you a whole, whole lot about them because it's tough for me to work with that population. I love them. I love them dearly, and I really want the best for them, but I don't know how to um, treat them as young as you and then an adult when it's convenient. I can't, you know, it's very difficult. But we have some wonderful, wonderful staff who work with the young adults. And the young adults, you're gonna have that whole um, situation with housing where they're gonna have friends over a lot um, because the, the general consensus period is what do my friends think or what do my friends say? So you have uh, that element going on. But a lot of them go on to do really well. We have a young adult who came through our agency, came through that, uh, the Way Home program utilized that, did great, and then he went on to start doing this type of work, and then he got hired at an agency in California, and he's just doing awesome. He started pursuing his modeling career, photography dreams, but he still works at that agency, and he's just blossoming. Yeah, really good kid. Well, really good young adult. <laughs> Do y'all have any other questions? Um, yeah, I feel like y'all kind of, in terms of if uh, if one of our clients come, come to one of your properties and says, hey, uh, I'm working with the Salvation Army, I'm a veteran, uh, I would like to live, you know, at your property or in your community, can I apply? You know, uh, we encourage to do as much pre-screening as possible, you know, because we don't want them to waste their money and we can't pay for multiple application fees for them. So it's really helpful if you can pre-screen as much as possible. Because I know nobody in here does it, but we have some landlords who pay, who play the application fee game. You know, they know that somebody is not. They're like, oh, I think we think we can get you approved. It's like, I'm sorry, the system denied you. You know, and it's <laughs> do, do you provide your clients with a template? It's like, hey, here is my criteria that apply to me. Can I pass your pre-screening? Oh, so yeah. To, to prevent them from having to pay all the application fees. Okay. Absolutely. I encourage that. I encourage the landlords to uh, provide, you know, me or either the case manager, but me, I'm the navigator, uh, with the leasing criteria so that uh, I, 
can say, hey, I think this client might be a good fit, you know, and then we offer it to the client because the client has to have options and choices. And so we're not like, you better go to this property. They're going to, you know, get over there. <laughs> they have some options and choices. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Big thanks to Makiba for coming to our meeting. If you're interested in learning more about Salvation Army or different housing assistance programs, you can contact her at Makiba Hatton, it's M-A-K-I-E-B-A dot H-A-T-T-O-N at U-S-S dot SalvationArmy.org or call her at 713-223-8889. As always, thanks for, thanks for Ben Sound for providing the music and please subscribe and leave us a comment. Thank you so much and see you on the next, next episode.